Thank you, worship team. You are ushered in the presence. Amen. In the way that um, I, at least, got slaughtered. I just had a, as that last song, as we were just worshiping God, I just had such a picture of God's glory. We're singing, holy, holy, holy. Got a picture of Isaiah and his vision in Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord and the train of his glory filled the temple. And uh, it just was this sense of the glory being this emerald, just just beauty, sheer beauty, sheer beauty and glory and, and all around us. But some of us have calluses on our eyes. You can't see what you can't see. That, that beauty of God, which is his holiness, which is his love, which is his wrath, which is his power, which is, it, it, it's, it's all one. It's all one thing, and it's God. And it's that beauty and that love that, that, that breaks all the chains that we're singing about earlier, that we sing Amazing Grace. Uh, that's the beauty that transforms us and that changes us. It melts away all of the wounds and the scars. And, and, that, uh, and so our prayer has got to be, Lord, open our eyes. It's got a sense of, of Elisha and his servant. And uh, the servant was freaking out because there's this military army that was surrounding them. And Elisha just very calmly said, Lord, open up his eyes. He could see what's really going on here. And then the servant immediately could see that they were surrounded by these flaming chariots, these angels. And in fact, they had nothing to fear. They had nothing to fear. But you don't see what you can't see. And so our prayer has got to be, Lord, open our eyes. Amen. Lord, open our eyes to see your beauty more clearly. Ah. Well, we've been going through this little mini-series that we really didn't plan on, but we've been hovering on Colossians. As we're going, just speeding through the book of Colossians like we do. And uh, uh, we've been hovering for a couple of weeks on Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. This magnificent portion of Scripture. Here's what it says. Oh, but I, we're going to title this message, uh, A Little Greg and the Ugly Stick. Show me the picture that Charlie came up with. Oh, yeah, there we go. Little Greg and the Ugly Stick. Isn't that, isn't that just adorable? So you can tell this is going to be a little bit of an autobiographical uh, message. Uh, little Greg and the Ugly Stick. That was just brilliant. Way to go, Charlie and his team. Uh, and here's what it says in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. When you were dead in your sins... And when they were singing, you are the air we breathe, and we're lost without you. We're desperate for you. This was hitting me. Because we were dead in our sins. We, we, are so, we are so lost without him. We desperately need him more than we can ever imagine. We, we, we're desperate for him. We were dead in our sins. And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature just means we were outside, away from God. But while we were in that state, God made us alive with Christ. Shared Christ's life with us. He forgave us all of our sins and having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, gone forever. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, a laughingstock of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is an ingenious plan. We talked about it last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message. 
This brilliant, brilliant, ingenious plan where God used the evil of Satan to his own purposes to accomplish the whole, the whole plan of getting us set free and defeating the powers. One other verse I want to read before we get into the message. It's from Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Ever been there? For I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Prepare, prepare me here. Abba Father, I thank you for your presence in this place. Your awesome, glorious presence in this place. I pray, Lord God, that you'd open our eyes to see you in all your glory. Open our eyes. And use this message, God, to open our eyes to see you in all of your beauty and all of your love. Open our eyes, God, to see you in all of your holiness. God, open our eyes so that we can let in the, the rays of your love and the rays of your very being to melt away all the things that hold us in bondage, to free us, to free us to be the liberated, joyful, carefree children that you've created us and saved us to be. Burn away every chain. Heal every wound. Wave away every sin. Collapse every lie. And set the captives free. Pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 Here in Romans 7, Paul speaks autobiographically in the first person. And he's doing it to show why the law can't work. Now, the law, it can condemn us, but it can't free us. It can condemn us, but it can't justify us. It can't get us in a right relationship with God. Because it tells us what needs to be done, but it doesn't empower us to do it. And so we're, we're in a state, in this fallen state that we're in, where we're in a contradiction. And we experience that contradiction in different ways. Paul says, the good that I want to do, I have enough goodness in me to want to do it, but I don't have enough goodness to actually do it. And the evil that I want to avoid, the evil that the law says I should avoid, I want to avoid it, but I keep on doing it. And so he's cursed. The law, in fact, he says in Romans 7 and in Galatians 3, it's given really for that very purpose. It's God's way of, of laying the groundwork to show us our need, our desperate need for something greater than oughts and shoulds and do's and threats. It shows us our need for a savior, our need for God to come and take residency inside of us and empower us to live the life that he's called us to live. Paul, in his, in his Romans 7 state, is in a contradiction. And he speaks autobiographically to lead his audience to discover for themselves the beautiful God of Romans 8. 8.1, where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Paul ends Romans 7 by saying, Who can set us free from this wretched, wretched man that I am, this wretched death that I have? And then he says, Thank God. There's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And then he unpacks the beauty of the God of Romans 8, which answers the question of the bondage of where Paul was at in Romans 7. What set Paul free was not a turning up of the ratchet of the threats of the law. A lot of people think that. Pharisees always think that. The Pharisees, Pharisaical Christians today think that. If you just turn up the, give a megaphone to the threats and a megaphone to the oughts and the shoulds, and turn up the ferociousness of God, well, you'll scare people into doing the right thing. But that's exactly what doesn't work. That's what Romans 7 is all about. What set Paul free 
was when he discovered the God who says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. What set Paul free was when he discovered the God who was willing to take on our curse so that we wouldn't have to be cursed. And the God who became our sin to free us from our sin and so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What set Paul free was the discovery of this God declared in Colossians 2. The God who outsmarted the enemy. The God who was able to use the evil of the enemy uh, to crucify Christ and use the evil of the enemy to cancel the charge of indebtedness that was against us. The God who used the evil of the enemy to blow up the entire economy so that those of us who are in debt need never fear getting in debt again. What set Paul free was the discovery of this beautiful God who used the evil of the enemy to defeat evil, praise God, and make a laughing stock out of them. When Paul met that God, that God revealed in Jesus Christ that set him free from the bondage and the curse of the law, the bondage of the oughts without the empowerment to do the oughts. It set Paul free to get out of this contradiction that he was in up to this point. It set Paul free to get out of Romans 7 and to start living in the beauty of, of Romans 8. Everything hangs, everything, everything hangs on our seeing and internalizing the beauty of that God. I, I tweeted this this last week that we will never be more beautifully transformed than our picture of God is beautiful. Your, your, the beauty of your transformation will never outrun the beauty of your picture of God. It, it just won't happen. Uh, if you embrace a beautiful portrait of God to the degree that your picture is beautiful, you'll be transformed in a beautiful direction. But to the degree that your picture of God, the, the, the mental picture you have, not your theology, who cares about your theology is? It's what, what is actually going on in your head when you think about God. If you embrace an ugly picture of God, it's going to transform you in the direction of ugliness. Uh, it, we always become the God that we worship. If you wonder how it is that you know, religious people can, in the name of God, Allah, whatever, drive planes into skyscrapers and kill thousands of innocent people, well, you're just seeing they're working out of their picture of God. When you find about religious people who blow themselves up in marketplaces and take, you know, dozens of innocent people with them, you're seeing a picture of the God that they worship. And when you see the ugly pharisaical religion, whatever, whether it's Islam or Jewish or Christian, it doesn't matter. But when you see the, the ugly, ugliness of religious people who just judge other people and who scapegoat certain groups of people, whether it's gays or women's or minorities, and they, they, they feed off of the contrast, what you're seeing there and that ugliness is simply a picture of the God that they worship. If you worship the accuser, you become the accuser. It doesn't matter whether you call that accuser Jesus or Jehovah or Allah, it's one and the same. We're transformed in the image of God that we worship. The kingdom of God is all about, it's all about having a vibrant relationship with the beautiful God revealed in Jesus Christ and being transformed into his likeness. It's about worshiping the God who looks like Jesus dying on the cross and then being transformed in the direction of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And, and that is the kingdom of God. That's the reign of God right there. So everything hangs, everything hangs on our getting the, a true, accurate picture of God. And not just knowing it intellectually, but letting it go into the deepest pores of our being. So we thought this, tonight, this last week, that I'm dealing with this passage, that I should maybe do what Paul did. Paul spoke autobiographically to lead the audience to Romans 8.1, and the God is revealed in Colossians 2. And, um, and so it, what the team that helps me put together the, the message's thought is that 
It might be good for me to share my prequel. I shared a little bit of, a few weeks ago about Roman, how I discovered that Romans 8, God, in that parking lot. And the team thought I should do the prequel to that, and tell the story that goes from Romans 7, my Romans 7, uh, to my Romans 8. And, and the goal of the whole thing is to just be praying that the Spirit of God would open us up uh, to receive more deeply than we've ever received before, or maybe for the first time, the beauty of this God. And, and, and to embrace that beautiful God on the inside. Um, and, and to dare to believe that, that God is really that beautiful. There's something about narrative. There's something about telling a story. We, we, we identify with each other's story, and a story can get on the inside in a way that sometimes propositional teaching can't. And, and so they wanted me to share the story of me, how God brought me to the, the Romans 8-1 place, my own Romans 7 story. And so if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard parts of my story. And if you've been here for a long while, you've heard probably the whole thing. But it's not about information. Uh, It's about testifying and letting the Holy Spirit use that to open up our eyes and our hearts to continue the process of growing in our walk with him. So I'm going to tell you my my, my story. I I so easily relate to Paul in Romans Romans chapter 7. I felt... As long as I could remember that I was a, I was a contradiction. A contradiction, wanting to do the good, but not being able to do it. And wanting to avoid the evil, but not being able to avoid it. About 15 years ago, my son, who's got uh, autism, his therapist told me in, in one of our sessions that he, he just diagnosed me. He says, I'm going to give you a free diagnosis here. You've got ADHD. <laughs> Uh, and he says, I also think you've got some Asperger's tendencies. Now, I didn't know what any of that was, but I did some research. And as I read about Asperger's and, and ADHD, it was really, it was, it was a story of my life. It was killing me softly with his song kind of a thing. Um, because it was just me. And, and it was really refreshing in a way because you realize there's other aliens out there. <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> it was really it was really refreshing. But all the time I... in, in, in as a little kid in school, I always, and this is so typical of ADHD kids, I was always in trouble and I never knew why. I didn't plan on it or anything, I just always, always found myself in trouble. They'd always send me, you know, they sent me to this real conservative Catholic school to straighten me out, and um, uh, I was always in Mother Superior's office. She was the big military tank-shaped lady who, who <laughs> was in charge of this whole school, and I was always in Mother Superior's office. And uh, I was always surprised to be there. And she say, Mr. Boyd, why did you, why did you put the tack on Mother Mary Joseph's chair? Why did you, you know, throw that spit water? Why did you flick that booger? Why did you put Amy's hair in the ink? Why? And I'd always say, I don't know. And she'd get furious at me, but I was telling the truth. I didn't know. You think I thought about that ahead of time? I, I discovered myself doing these things. I'm not trying to invent anything. That's just classic ADHD. And then she'd always give me the, the alternative. Here, here's the choice I was always given. He said, well, I can either call your parents or we can take care of this here. And to take care of it here just meant that she had the ugly stick. And uh, this ugly stick was like this, uh, it, was, it was a big wooden flyswatter, but bigger. And it, it actually had holes drilled into it, uh, I'm sure, to, to take care of wind resistance. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't know, but this nun, I think, was a dominatrix before she became a nun because she enjoyed this. I know she enjoyed it. She was getting off on this. <laughs> Mr. Boyd, bend over. And it was, and depending on the severity of my crime, uh, it would depend on how many whaps I got. 
But whatever I got was better than if she would have called home. That would have been far worse. Uh, but that was just the story of it. I, was, I, I wanted to do the good, but I just couldn't ever do it. And I wanted to avoid getting in trouble, uh, but I never could seem to avoid it. I just found myself in trouble all the time. It was, it was very much the same at home. Um, I, and I, I've talked about my stepmother here quite a bit. You know about her. She was, you know, she's a wonderful lady towards the end of her life. Praise God for her. She believed in Jesus. But in the period of time that she was raising us, she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown all the time. And so when she'd get mad, she'd snap. Just snap and, and, and do kind of crazy stuff and, and get physically abusive. And, and I always found myself in trouble and again, never knew why. She was kind of like Mother Superior on steroids when she snapped. And it wasn't pretty. I remember this one time. Uh, I had done something wrong. I didn't remember what it was, but my, cr- my punishment was I had to do the dishes. We didn't have a dishwasher, so I had to do the dishes. And we must have had a party the night before or something. I don't know, because but there's a lot of dishes. And it was some of my mom's best china. And, um, and so I'm doing the dishes, which is very boring, which is a curse if you have ADHD. So to make it more interesting, I just started piling it up and building towers. And, and, uh, it, just, and it was uh, getting very creative, creating like a, this, this, you know, a couple of these towers. One in particular I started focusing on. And it was so cool how you could balance the dish and balance the two glasses on the side of the dish. And it was getting higher and higher. I was going to carry away with this. I was kind of having fun with it. I was so proud that I, I, I invited my older brother and his older friend down. I said, you guys, come and look what I built. And, and they came down and they saw this and they went, wow. And then they encouraged me to build it higher and, and cheer me on, you know. And they even got a chair because it got so high I couldn't reach it anymore. So I got a chair and, and they were helping me build this thing, getting higher and higher and higher. And I was just amazed at the loudness of the crash uh, when, when it fell down and, and how many splinters fine china goes into when it crashes from a high distance. It was fascinating. It was like, it's bomb. I was... And I remember my brother and his friends just on the floor laughing their heads off. And my mom, I, it was only when I heard her scream bloody murder downstairs, this blood-curling scream, that all of a sudden it occurred to me, there's a limit to how high this can go. <laughs> and there's consequences for when you hit that limit or when you exceed that limit. And uh, the next thing I remember uh, is her mouth just, just kind of coming towards me back, towards me back, screaming, just screaming, because she had me by the ears, and she was going like this. And I, I honestly, I, was, I remember being afraid that she was going to rip my ears off, and I would look so stupid without ears. That was my thought as, she's go- as I'm going through this. I'm going to go through school without any ears on, you know? But see, I, I just didn't think ahead on those things. I didn't plan on, I wasn't being malicious or anything, it's just those things happen. And uh, I always saw myself in trouble and didn't plan on being there. Wanted to do the good, but just wasn't capable of doing it. And then there was these older kids that I got in with. I don't know how I, that happened, but I'm six and seven years old, and they're 10, 11, 12 years old. And so I, they, we have a smoking club. So I would, you know, in the joint, you had to steal your parents' cigarettes or cigars, whatever you get your hand on. And so my dad smoked a lot, so we, I'd steal the cigarettes. We'd go out in the woods. Here I am smoking with these older kids, you know. Um, or we had a stripping club where uh, you had to, to join the club. You had to strip off all your clothes and climb a tree. And then they'd hide your clothes around the woods and you had to go looking for them. And it wasn't until this afternoon preparing for this message that occurred to me that that was probably a prank. Because no, I don't recall anyone else ever having to do that. I think they just got in on this little kid. But I remember running around the woods looking for my clothes, asking my brother, please tell me where they are because I can't, you know. This is very embarrassing running around naked like this. But uh, what is a kid? It blows me away that a kid that age, I got grandkids almost at that age now, and I think what I, the trouble I was into when I was their age just blows me away. And I felt guilty for doing this stuff. I always felt guilty. 
but not enough to stop. I mean, at least this wasn't boring. And so I was continuing to be involved in it. So I had this, you know, troubled streak. I was always in trouble. But on the other hand, I, I, I really had a good streak in me, uh, a, a real spiritual streak. Um, I, you know, I, I've shared before that I was obsessed with death from the earliest memory I can remember. I was always obsessed with death. And, and because I was obsessed with death, I became obsessed with theological stuff, going to Catholic school, learning about this stuff. I always thought about God. I always thought about a heaven. I always thought about hell, especially thought about hell. Man, the first time the nuns told me about hell and how it's a burning place where bad people go and they never burn up, I, I thought about that a lot. I had nightmares, lurid, vivid nightmares of, of hell. That was on my mind. Uh, I, I, I thought about sin a lot. I, I, I thought about angels a lot. I remember get, hearing about guardian angels. And uh, it kind of freaked me out. I was sure my guardian angel was a girl. I, I don't know why, but I, I, was, I was sure that my guardian angel was a girl. And that makes it really tough when you have to go to the bathroom and you're embarrassed. So I always sat down. I never, even if I had to go number one, I sat down because I didn't want her seeing my stuff. And, you know, I, I was kind of paranoid about that. Caused bowel issues, you know. Uh, but I, I took all this stuff very, very seriously. Oh, it was always on my mind, obsessed with it. I always wanted to talk about it too. But see, I stuttered really bad, and so I couldn't get my, you had to be really patient to listen to me because I couldn't get words out. And I always wanted to talk about the things I was thinking about, but very few people were interested in this or patient enough to listen to it. So it was all there in my head. I'm trying to figure this world out in my head, kind of locked in there um, on my own. I, I remember one time in this class, it was Father Chalky, this old priest. He was giving this teaching on the difference, some of you Catholics will recognize this, uh, the difference between venial and mortal sin. Uh, we, for Protestants, a sin is sin, but we, they had this difference between venial and mortal sin. And a venial sin, this priest said, was uh, a sin that once you confess it, it's wiped away, it's all, all good. But a mortal sin is the kind of sin where when you confess it, it's, it can be wiped away, but it's like a nail that gets pounded into a board. You can take the nail out, but there'll always be a mark there. It will never go away. And I needed to know exactly what the difference was between mortal and venial. I had to know. And so I, in my stuttering voice, grilled Father Chalky. I, I got to know what exactly is the difference here because I got to know whether I've committed mortal sin or not. I don't want to go into all eternity with these marks on my soul. And so I was you know, trying to, with a stuttering mouth, trying to get, and he was very patient. He was listening, trying to understand what I was getting at. But the kid starts saying, shut up, let him talk. And he shut up. And even when the nuns came over and said, Greg, you know, we need to let Father Chalky go on. But Father Chalky was, no, no, he's got a question. I could just never get it out. But I wanted to know, is smoking and stripping a mortal sin? Now, is, is that... Because I'm pretty sure it is. Uh, but I said, there was a part of me that was just really, really spiritual. And I prayed all the time. I was always praying. Always talking to God or to my guardian angel or whoever would listen to me. I prayed especially to, to Mary because, you know, they, all the pictures. We had to go to Mass almost every morning. And all the pictures and statues in this cathedral of, 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 the, of God and of the saints all looked pretty ominous at best, if not, you know, just mean. And in the school, they had the pictures and stuff, and they all looked mean. But there was a picture of Mary. Uh, it was a statue of Mary, actually, at the front of this cathedral. And she was so sweet and beautiful, and she held the baby Jesus. And so I would always pray to Mary. I just, I prayed more Hail Marys. I just, she was my go-to gal. I thought, if I have any chance of getting into heaven, it's going to be with Mary. And so I, I just talked to Mary. And the nuns taught us that the, the son listens to the mother. And so if you want to get the ear of Jesus, talk to Mary. And so I would talk to Mary, and I would say, Mary... Look, when you talk to Jesus, 
You're saying, he'll listen to you and just tell him I'm trying. Tell him I'm trying. I know I'm not very good, but I'm trying. And I don't want to go to the devil. I don't want to go and burn with the devil. And so will you please just tell him that I want to be saved and I want to go to heaven and I'm doing my best. You know, it just, it, it, right now, it breaks my heart as I look at my grandkids who are about the age I was at when I was praying this stuff, that any kid would be praying a prayer like that. Uh, it, a kid should not have to be worried about that. But that's where I was at. I, there's a part of me. I want to be good. I want to be saved. I don't want to go to burn with the devil. So I talk to Mary all the time. Mary's my, 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 my go-to gal. I was living this contradiction. I, I, wanting so bad. It was my, this is my Romans 7. Wanting so bad to be good, but I just, it, I'm not very good at it. Wanting so, so badly to avoid evil, but I just, that's what I'm good at doing. I'm so, I don't want the ugly stick, but I always seem to get it. I want God to like me, but I'm sure, pretty sure he doesn't. I want to go to heaven, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go to the devil. It's caught in that contradiction. And I had a contradiction, and really, as I look back on it, what it was is I, I was longing at this age that I was at. I, I was, what I was longing for and praying to Mary so much is I was longing for someone up in there in the, in the important realm to like me. Somebody who's a somebody up there in the spiritual realm where you make things happen with somebody up there like me. I, I was longing, longing to be loved. I was, I was longing for a God who would like me, a God who would accept me, a God whose love for me would be bigger than my sin. That's what I was looking, longing for. I couldn't frame it like that at that age, but that's what I was longing for. I was longing for a God who would love me for free. The way Mary, I could see, loved Jesus, even though I know that I'm no Jesus, but I, I want that kind of love. The love of that lady. That, that's what my heart was longing for. Well, that, 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 that contradiction and that longing carried on into my teen years. Um, I quit believing in God at the age of 13. My, my parents got a divorce, and uh, family blew up. To, went all over the place. So I, I, it was me and my dad, my older brother sometimes. My dad declared right after the divorce that he was an atheist, that he never really believed in God. He only went to church to appease my stepmother, and, and so he didn't believe in God. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in the camp with you there. So I declared myself to be an atheist. And I no longer prayed. I missed Mary a little bit, you know, uh, but, but I, I didn't miss anything else. In fact, it really felt pretty good. It felt really freeing. I got the accuser off my back. I, I no longer was trying to appease that God. And that really felt freeing, very liberating. But I still had a real emptiness uh, on the inside. I still had this contradiction. I, you know, I, I'm convinced, by the way, that, that I think most atheists, people who say they don't believe in God, all they're doing is trying to get the accuser off their back. They're, they're, they, they, they're tired of trying to appease that be- deity. And, and so you can understand why. They want the accuser off their back. If they, if they were getting rid of the real God, they'd at least feel bad about it. But most of them get rid of God out of anger. And that's where I was at when I was 13. And I, but I still had this contradiction. Uh, I, I, the next four years of my life was pretty much a life of drugs, sex, rock and roll, and a lot of trouble. I had so much freedom. My dad was gone all the time. So I, it was his drugs, sex, rock and roll, and freedom. But there was, there was a part of me that still felt guilty about it. And I, I didn't even know why. I would try to, I would say to myself, I shouldn't feel guilty. There's nothing wrong with this. But I did. A part of me still wanted to be good. And I still had that longing, that longing for something. I, I would, we would get stoned. We were doing, you know, hallucinogenics and stuff. And as we did this stuff, listening to the Moody Blues and the Beatles or Pink Floyd or whoever, I, I was hoping for an experience of something, a, a higher reality. I knew there had to be a higher reality that made sense out of this absurd existence that we find ourselves in. Something's got to make sense out of this. 
And I was looking for something that would fulfill this emptiness in my soul because the idea that death ends it all. I still was obsessed with death, always talked about it with everybody. Uh, but the idea that death is the end of everything just struck me as so utterly absurd and meaningless. So I was hungry, looking for something. And it was probably that hunger. In fact, it was certainly that hunger and that longing that ended me up in this, at the age of 17 in this Pentecostal church. And um, I, I ended up, after visiting it for a couple of weeks, I, I was just so hungry, so empty, that I, I, uh, I, I, they seemed to have something that I didn't have. And so I, I gave my heart to Christ. And I had a, really an incredible experience with Jesus. I, I, it was, I, I, to this day, I'll tell you, it was absolutely real. It was profound. It was overwhelming. It was beautiful. I had this incredible experience with Jesus. In fact, several times in the first year of that Christian walk, his, uh, encounters with God that were just really profound. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was beautiful. But the trouble was that this Pentecostal church, even though they had offered people this wonderful experience of God, it was still, it was a, it was a hyper-legalistic church. It was a church where you related to God on the basis of obeying various rules and believing the right thing. If you don't obey the rules and live a holy life as they defined it and, and believe all the right things as they define it, well then, then God has nothing to do with you. And, and so really I hadn't found a beautiful God that could set me free yet. I still was living in a Romans 7 existence even with my experience of Jesus. The, the, the view of God that I was given was really a fairly, it was a contradictory view of God. And a lot of people have this, I think, where I'm told that God loves me and died for me. Which is, yeah, wonderful. But on the other hand, if I don't believe exactly the right things and if I don't do all the right things, well, then this God's going to send me to hell. Which means that, that and I came to this conclusion pretty quickly, that, that it's not really me that God's loving. What God's loving is right beliefs and right behavior. And if I'm attached to the right beliefs and the right behavior, then I'm in. But if I'm not attached to the right behavior and right beliefs, then I'm out. Which really means that what God really loves is right beliefs and right behavior. People are sort of incidental to the equation. They're sort of an addendum. This wasn't a God who loved me for free. This was a, this was a God. Even though I was told that God loves me, my picture of God was still very much of the God of, of the a God who looks like Mother Superior holding that ugly stick ready to smack me. Eternally, if I don't believe the right things and, and do the right things. And this is, a, even though they said that God loves me, this is very much of a picture of God that's very much like my, my stepmother who's ready to rip my ears off if I break her dishes. But this God will do it eternally. So I still lived in this contradiction. God really doesn't love me for free. You know, I, I tried valiantly. I tried valiantly to live for that God. I, for, for a year and a half, tried valiantly. I gave it my best shot. I wanted to be good. I'm still trying to be good. I, I, I did the rules as best I could. I prayed all the time. I read the Bible diligently. I went to church four times a week. We'd go Tuesday night and Thursday night and twice on Sunday. And, and uh, you know, I quit my rock band and quit that whole crowd. And I quit the drugs and the booze. And I quit the partying. And I really cleaned up my act. But as I shared a couple weeks ago, what I couldn't kick was the pornography. I had had that since the age of 13, and living with my dad alone, he had his stash, and he didn't try to hide it. He thought this was normal stuff. And so here I am, 17 and 18 years old. I'm a walking hormone ready to pop, and everywhere I turn, there's just you know, pornography all over the place. And I would try so hard not to look at that. I would go sometimes a whole day, sometimes two days, maybe even three. Once I went a whole week, 
uh, doing, you know, and so that was, you know, wonderful. But eventually I'd fall into it. I'd fall back into it. Because see, my picture of God was still this authoritarian God with the ugly stick cock back ready to smack me. And the one thing I've been good at all my life is ticking those authorities off. So one thing that's consistent about me, and, and so you give me a rule and I'm going to step over that line. As much as I would like to please you, I can't. I just am not good at that. What I am good at doing is making you angry. The evil that I like to avoid, well, that's what I end up always doing. And so my, my basic psyche, my basic picture of God, my basic picture of myself hadn't changed at all. I just was giving it a more valiant attempt to try to resolve the contradiction by my own willpower. I will be good. I will be good. I will. I will. I will be good. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And in this church, you're only as saved as your last sinless moments. See, so what would happen is I would fall, eventually fall, and, and then, you know, since I lost my salvation, I would figure, well, I might as well take advantage of this unsaved state I'm in, because I'll get saved again on Sunday night when we have our evangelistic service, so then the rest of the week would just be Sinville, uh, you go on a sin binge, and then get re-saved on Saturday nights, on Sunday nights. Uh, and it, it was a sick thing. And I, so that brings me to kind of, that's the prequel to the little story I shared a couple weeks ago in the parking lot. Came out of the church one night after a Sunday night evangelistic service where I didn't go forward this time. And I was just done. I was done. I was on this parking lot with my friend who wrestled with similar kinds of issues. And I just said to myself, some of that I said verbally, I'm tired. I'm just tired. I'm tired of being saved and getting saved and then unsaved and saved and unsaved. And I think God's getting tired of this thing too. And I'm tired of living under this condemnation and I'm tired of living in this contradiction that's never going to go away. I'm tired of, of trying to please the mother superior in the sky. I'm tired of being afraid of the ugly stick. And that moment when I got that level of honesty, there was what erupted out of me was, I think, a lifetime of anger and rage and failure, frustration and disappointment. It just blew up, just erupted out. Just like, like Old Faithful in Yellowstone Park, it just erupted. I said to God, I think what I had said to my mother, my stepmother, when I was six, very explicitly in, in my head to Mother Superior, and what I said basically was, was this. I'm, I'm done. I'm done with this. And to my stepmother, I said when I was six, you don't like me, so I don't like you. And so that I, you're never going to be able to hurt me again. I, I, I said, you want to use the ugly stick? Then use the ugly stick. Use the ugly stick, but you're not going to get me to cry, and I'm not going to be afraid of the ugly stick anymore. I remember thinking that with Mother Superior. You're going to send me to hell and send me to hell. Do it. But I'm, not, I'm tired of being afraid of that. And you're not going to make me cry. I'll rip my ears off and rip my ears off. You want to use the two by four? Use the two by four. You want to use the belt? Use the belt. Not knock yourself out, but you're not going to get me to cry. And I'm not going to be afraid of it anymore. And so I just exploded. And I, I moment of truth. And my friend stepped back a little bit to avoid the lightning when it came down, as I just sort of erupted here. And it's like, I, I can't stand you. I can't stand you. I can't stand your stuffy, self-righteous, fat church. I can't stand this Bible with all its rules and all your stories of slaughtering people. I can't stand this world that you say that you run when babies are being molested and people are starving. I can't stand the, the, the fact that I'm tired of living up, trying to live up to your rules, never being good enough. 
not good at doing stuff you called me to be good at, and you're the one who made me this way. And it just erupted. And I think it was that raw honesty, that level of completely truthful honesty, that gave God a chance to finally start being true with me. As long as you're playing this game, it's a pretense game, and you can't get truth in. But when we're raw, honest, that's why some of the prayers of the Bible are so beautifully raw, almost blasphemous. You never have to fear being honest with God. He can take it. He's a very, very big God. What, what he would honors and likes more than anything else is truth. And there's that raw honesty, though it was, it was pretty close to blasphemous. God gave a chance to be honest with me. And that, that, was it. That, that was the point where my friend said we must be missing something. And I, in anger, threw my Bible down on the hood of his trunk and it flopped open. And I started to read the Bible sarcastically, mocking God. And it turned to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Is that what you're looking for? Is that what we're missing? There is therefore now no, no condemnation. What does that mean? I'd read that many times before, but I didn't know what it meant. I started reading it and reading it again and again and again. And then I went on and read further. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can lay any charge to God's elect? And, and it was, I can't begin to describe the experience that happened to me in that moment. Uh, my eyes were opened up. All of a sudden, I saw something I hadn't seen before. All of a sudden, I saw for the first time in my life, I saw the true God. First time in my life, I saw a God who was not at all like Mother Superior, a God who was not at all like my stepmother. The first time in my life, I saw a God who didn't have the ugly stick cocked back ready to smack me the next time I screw up, or God who wasn't ready to rip off my ears if I broke her dishes. The first time in my life, I saw a God who wasn't the one holding my sins against me and wasn't out there holding me over hell, ready to drop me into it when I did something wrong. For the first time in my life, my eyes were opened up to a God who was beautiful, the God who, who, who says there's no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For the first time in my life, I saw a picture of God that I actually wanted to live for. For the first time in my life, I sensed a motivation that was other than fear. A, a motivation that was just different than wanting to avoid getting smacked by the ugly stick. For the first time in my life, I saw a picture of God where you actually love me. He loves me. His love for me is bigger than my sin. He loves me. He doesn't just like right behavior. He doesn't just love nice, nice, nice doctrine. He loves me for me sake. He loves me. And I saw a picture of God who's actually mad at the accuser for pointing out my sin. <laughs> That's the God of the Bible. A God who is he's not, he's not my accuser. He's the anti-accuser. A God who's my defender. He wants to defend me from the accuser and protect me from the accuser and save me from the accuser. For the first time in my life, I saw the beautiful God. The God who, who just, who captures my heart. A God who would do anything, anything to be with me throughout eternity. A God who would do, would become a human being and go to the cross and die a hellish death for me to be with me throughout eternity. A God who would become my curse so I don't have to be cursed anymore. And a God who would become my sin so I don't have to be under the bondage of sin anymore, praise God. A God who took the ugly stick and was crucified on the ugly stick so I don't have to ever fear the ugly stick again. When I saw that beautiful God, it changed everything. That's the ultimate game changer. And that God gets in. It revamps everything. It changed how I view myself. For the first time in my life. I'm not just a loser. I'm not just a screw-up. I'm not just a kid who can't get it right. Kid who stutters. I'm not just the, the idiot. I'm not just the kid who's always disappointing the authorities. I'm someone who's loved. But, First time in my life, I got this idea, I am, I belong to him. He wants me, he wants me, not just because I don't break dishes. 
A God who doesn't have the ugly stick cocked back, but a God who wants to embrace me with his arms. I'm a king's kid. I'm a beloved. First time in my life, I begin to see that God dances over me. He sings over me. He rejoices over me. He claps his hands over me, the Bible says. He delights in me. And not because I'm so good. No, even when I break the dishes, even when I'm a total screw-up, he still claps his hands over me. What said Paul free goes to Romans 7 and Romans 8 is what set me free. And it's what sets all of us free. That's a vision of the beautiful God. A vision of the beautiful God. And I hope, I mean, I hope now you can see why I'm so passionate about this. Why, this is everything. I'm so passionate about this. It, it comes down to this. I, I think everybody in their heart of hearts wants to believe this. Who wouldn't? That God is this beautiful. You want to believe it. But the enemy even uses that against us by saying, oh, come on, get real. When in this world have you ever seen your dreams come true? When in this world have, in fact, the very fact that you want it proves that this is just wishful thinking. No wonder you want it to be true. Yeah, sure. But see, we're so used to getting our dreams squished in this fallen world that it's easier for us to believe in a God less beautiful. A God who's more commonsensical. We expect that. Some of us have been battered around enough so that it feels very natural to have an abusive God. That feels very right, very natural. And in the deepest part of our being, I think in the, the truest part of our being, we know that God is this beautiful. But we're afraid. We're just afraid. What if, what if the monster God turns out to be true? You know, John says this in 1 John, he says, There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So the question is, I'll leave us with tonight, is this. Will we trust Jesus? It comes down to this. Will we trust Jesus over and against the mother superior gods in our life, the monster gods, the abusive father gods, or maybe just the slightly legalistic gods? Will we trust Jesus when he says, if you see me, you see the Father? Will we trust that he reveals the very essence of the Father when he's dying for us on Calvary praying for our forgiveness? And will we let his love drive out all fear in our life? There's a place for reverence, of course, reverence, holy reverence, but there ought never be fear of the ugly stick for the child of God. What you need to know is that God dances over you. No ifs, ands, or buts. And that's what's going to change you. The pharisaical God will say, oh, no, see, if you start preaching that love stuff, people are just going to sin, 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 sin. Because the only motivation the Pharisee knows is fear. They don't know love, so how can they ever get love motivation? But I'm telling you that what the ugly stick couldn't do in my life, what, the, what a two-by-four couldn't do, what a belt couldn't do, what the fear of hell couldn't do, the love of God did. And that is to set me free. To set me free, praise God. Amen. It's, the love of God sets us free. That can break the chain. And I'm not saying I've never had a struggle since then, but it breaks the stronghold. When that love gets in there, that, that when you want to love God, want to live for God, that's what breaks the chain of bondage in our life. So close your eyes here just for a moment. And I just want to speak the word of God into our life here as I close in prayer. And as I do, can I ask the prayer teams to come up here? And, and if you're here tonight and have any need whatsoever, 
that you'd like to have prayed for, please come forward here. Maybe it's about this topic. Maybe it's about something completely unrelated. It doesn't matter. Just pray with these folks. But will you hear Jesus say, Jesus is here right now, and he's saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me? I know all the eternities at stake in this, but will you trust me? That's why I came. That's why I died on the ugly stick. Will you trust me? And in the core of your being, and you don't even have to ask the Holy Spirit here to help you do this because you can't do it on your own. And for some people, this might be the first time you've ever surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Welcome to the kingdom. This is all it's about. But just say yes. I will trust you. Yes, I will trust you. Yes, I will trust you. Jesus says to us tonight, I love you more than you could ever begin to fathom. My love for you has no limits, has no bounds, has no conditions. Just receive it. Let my love for you, my eternal love for you, my love that could not ever be in all eternity improved upon, my love that wouldn't be improved if you were better and wouldn't be lessened if you were worse. My love, let my love drive out all fear. You need never fear the monster God. You need never fear the God with the ugly stick, the God who motivates by fear and legislation. No, trust me. Will you trust me? Trust my character. Trust my character. Open your life up to me. Let me pour my love into you. And I will break the chains. When you get it, when you get it, how precious you are, it will break the chains. It will release you. I'm not saying it will always be easy, but it will break it. And you won't be doing it alone because I am always with you to the end of this age. Jesus, always be opening our eyes. Holy Spirit, be opening our hearts to see you in all your glory, to let you into every nook and cranny of our existence. Jesus, collapse the lies, the multitude of lies. Heal the wounds, the multitude of wounds. And set the captives free. God, help us to be safe, knowing we can be honest with you. We don't have to dance around with nice platitudes and pietisms and and religious language. But God, help us to be raw before you and honest before you, because you know us exactly as we are. And yet you died for us in this condition. Help us to be honest with you, God. And let you be honest with us. And let the dance begin. Let the dance begin. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. God is so beautiful. Amen. If you want to come up and pray, I encourage you to do that. If you want to just come up and kneel, I encourage you to do that. If you want to just sit for a little bit, you can do that. Or if you, when you, when you want to leave, feel free to do that. Keep your, uh, take your conversations out there, though, for people who want to be praying in here. God bless you. Let God just love on you, love on you, love you, and set the captives free and break the chains. In Jesus' name, amen.